Thank you, Anthony. Really appreciate it, and I'm excited to get to preach this morning. A um, couple of interesting notes that I hadn't actually planned to say, but I think I'm one of the few people who's genuinely excited about all the snow we've had. I, I love snowboarding. I like snowboarding with my kids. Um, however, if I appear to have worse posture than usual this morning, it's because I was just snowboarding on Friday and had my first really good face plant of the season. I was going down lift line. I have weird kids who like to snowboard and do moguls. And so we were going down lift line, and I caught a front edge and had my first good face plant, and my ribs are really sore. So if I'm looking like this, it's not because I'm overly burdened, it's just because I'm sore. Um, and then on a more serious note, as I look across the congregation this morning, I see a number of you who were aware and knew about the loss that my family experienced in the last week. Um, my wife lost her grandfather, who was like a second father to her and a great mentor to me, and we were out in Ohio this last weekend um, celebrating his life. And a number of you knew about that, reached out to us, helped us with meals and logistics and pet care and a lot of other things. And it just reminded me, one of the things that I love so much about Redemption, this particular church, is the way that you love each other well. And I've gotten to observe that secondhand so many times. I've been the firsthand recipient of it. And our family was, again, the recipient of that love and that care this last week. And I'm just deeply grateful, so thank you. Well, I am very excited to dig into our next passage in Isaiah with you this morning. I have appreciated and been fascinated by Isaiah for a long time, enough so that I was actually quite happy 16 years ago to give the author's name to one of our kids. For those of you for whom your coffee hasn't quite kicked in yet, that would be Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is one of my kids, 16 years old. And really love the book, love Isaiah as a writer, and I actually fell in love with the book in quarantine. Not COVID quarantine from the last couple of years, but a little bit over 20 years ago. I was actually a college student spending the summer as a camp counselor at a Christian youth camp in Michigan. And a couple weeks into the summer, I got this nasty sore throat and a fever, which meant I had to go to urgent care and get some tests for flu and strep throat. And sure enough, I had strep which meant that for the next week, rather than getting to spend my week playing games and running activities and doing devotions with a cabin full of rambunctious middle schoolers, I got to spend my entire next week quarantined in the camp infirmary, which was basically a sketchy log cabin up on a hill that was presided over and inhabited by the ancient, indomitable, and really crotchety camp nurse. Mrs. Butterfield. She was the only human, human contact I had for an entire week because it was strict rules that if you had strep, you had to stay quarantined away from everybody else. And so I was stuck in that cabin for a week. First couple of days, totally miserable. I had a fever, I had a horrible sore throat, the cough, all the symptoms of strep, and it was, it was awful. I didn't need anything to do, I just wanted to get better. But then my fever broke. And I had like four straight days of literally nothing to do. I didn't have a TV. iPod had just been invented, I think, the year before. I didn't have any music. I didn't have any podcasts. This was pre-cell phone, pre-social media, pre-YouTube. I didn't have a gaming system. I had nothing to do. I had a backpack that had my toothbrush and some clothes in it and a paperback New American Standard Bible. And so that's what I had to read. And so I decided, since I had a whole lot of time on my hands, I was going to read the Bible and get to know one particular book. I just picked a book. 
I happened to pick the second longest book in the Bible, Isaiah, and thought that I would spend some time getting to know Isaiah. I had read parts of it before. I had heard some sermons from Isaiah, but I had never really studied it because it's a really long book. And unlike some of the other long books in the Bible, like Psalms or some of the early historical books, there wasn't a really clear storyline or there weren't really pithy snippets of things that were just instantly encouraging, like in the Psalms or in the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Isaiah is full of really rich poetic language and really dense, obscure prophecies. It can be kind of intimidating. And so I just started reading through it. And over the next three or four days, I read it cover to cover, I don't know how many times. And I took notes on it, and I wrote down questions and observations. I had a class for college that I was doing some summer distance work, and I was actually required to write some sermon outlines, so I wrote some sermon outlines from Isaiah. And all of a sudden, by the end of that week, I was in love with this book. What a rich, rich book. And so when Anthony asked me, I think it was a couple months ago, actually, if I would preach one of the passages in Isaiah as part of this sermon series on the servant song, starting in chapter 40 and going through 55, my immediate answer was, yes, yes, I want to preach out of Isaiah. Now, don't worry, you're not getting some recycled sermon outline from my 19-year-old, like, cabin-crazed self. I don't think I still have any of those notes, and if I did, I should probably burn them. They were probably terrible. But I got to re-study Isaiah as I got into working on this message. And over the last several weeks, as I've studied Isaiah chapter 48 and 49, which is our passage today, I've fallen in love with Isaiah's profound, rich, prophetic poetry all over again. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Now, the context for this I'm at a bit of a disadvantage here because you all didn't get to hear Anthony's message last week on Isaiah 45 through 47, which is really the context that builds up to this passage. As he mentioned, we've had a whole lot of blizzards, like a blizzard, a couple blizzards a week for the last four or five weeks. And so that kept us from hearing a message on Isaiah 45 through 47. So let me just encourage you to go back and read those chapters. They are well worth reading if you haven't read them before. And in those chapters, you're going to find that Isaiah becomes the mouthpiece of God, as he is for most of this book. And he's the mouthpiece of God for telling with stunning accuracy, among other things, how a Persian king, Cyrus, who actually gets named in this book long before he ever did his work, the Persian king Cyrus is going to come and defeat Babylon and deliver Israel and restore them back to their land. And God says he's going to rescue Israel from the captivity they're suffering as a result of all of their rebellion against God. So go back, read those chapters, and look for all the amazing evidence of God's sovereign control over all the affairs of the world. That's the backdrop for our passage this morning. Chapter 48 concludes the first section of the servant song. Chapters 40 through 48 are a section of the servant song that's really focused on God, his sovereign power, his promises to his people. Very much focused on the power and control of God over all things for the benefit of his people and his promises to them, even though they are in captivity. And then chapter 49 begins a second section of the song. This is a transition here. Chapter 49 begins a section that's focused on the good news that is brought by the servant himself. 
This servant gets mentioned a number of times, and there are a number of actual songs that are spoken or sung by the servant, and chapter 49 has one of those. And we get to bridge that transition between those two sections of this servant song today. But I want to be very careful about something as we get into this passage. With a poem as rich in literary value as this section of Isaiah is, and with my love for this book and my admitted natural tendency to totally nerd out on stuff like this, um, there's the danger of becoming very academic, just really digging into the academic side of this, the theological side of this, the nerdy Hebrew side of this. And if I just did that for the next 30 minutes, this wouldn't be worth a whole lot to us. And so I can assure you this morning, that's not why I'm excited to teach this passage. The reason I'm excited is that in these two chapters, we are going to see into the depths of the doubts and the struggles and the fears that we have that are no different than the depths of the doubts and the struggles and the fears that God's people had over 2,000 years ago. And we're not only going to see into our own hearts, we're going to see into the heart of a God who can somehow be the ruthless destroyer of the wicked on the one hand, and a maternally compassionate and comforting Savior to his people on the other hand. We're going to see into our own hearts, and we are going to see into the heart of our God this morning. And so if you stay with me, I believe that you'll get to know yourself and get to know your God better today as a result of what we read and what I'm, by God's grace, able to teach this morning. So let's dive in. Looking at Isaiah chapter 48 and 49, I'd like to start just by summarizing the theme of these two transitional chapters. The theme is this, and if you're a note-taker, feel free to write this down. It's kind of long, so I'll say it at least twice. For his own glory, the sovereign God will rescue his stubborn people and bring salvation to the world through his servant. For his own glory, the sovereign God will rescue his stubborn people and bring salvation to the world through his servant. This morning, I'm going to walk through the message of these two chapters and then conclude with a closer look at two very common doubting questions that I think echo the thoughts of our own hearts. And they're posed in this passage, and we're going to see how God addresses those. So we're going to look at the two chapters, and then we're going to look at two questions that we find in the second chapter. So that's really the structure of what we're going to do today. We'll start with chapter 48. In chapter 48, the theme of the whole chapter is that God is the trustworthy sovereign. God is the trustworthy sovereign. In the first two chapters, sorry, in the first two verses of chapter 48, God reminds his people that they don't know or trust God like they claim to. Look at chapter 48, verse 1, and I believe some of these passages will be up on screen. Chapter 48, verse 1. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel, and come from the line of Judah, who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. What, what God is saying here, if you pay attention, is he's saying you claim to believe all these things. You claim this heritage. You claim my name, but it's unrighteous. It's untrue. It's empty. You're just using me like a lucky rabbit's foot. You're using me for your own purposes. You don't really have a relationship with me. 
These people claim their Jewish heritage, they claim their faith, they claim their God's name, but it's all just empty. They don't really know or trust God. And God tells them why he has this assessment of them in verses 3 through 5. So continuing on in chapter 48. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, My images brought them about. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. What's God doing here? He's saying that despite God's telling them what would happen long beforehand, which made it completely illogical for them to attribute any of these actions to their own metal or iron gods, their idols, these people have been too stubborn, too rebellious to actually listen to the God they are supposed to trust. They don't even listen to him, let alone trust him. It's been like their neck muscles are iron. Their neck muscles are too stiff to look around. It's what the Bible says elsewhere when God calls his people stiff-necked. This is just a more creative way of saying it. He calls their foreheads bronze. You ever call someone hard-headed? That's what God's doing here, just more figurative language. They, they aren't able to receive information. They're too stubborn to do so. And then we see the same thing if you skip down to verse 8. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ears have not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. The Israelites claimed religious status with God. But they were actually dead set against hearing and obeying him. And this is precisely why they are in captivity in Babylon. For years and years and years, God had been patient. Sending them in captivity to Babylon had not been a knee-jerk reaction from God. He was not a cruel judge. For centuries, God's people had refused to listen, had refused to obey, had refused to follow him, and now they were suffering the consequences. God was disciplining them to get their attention because they wouldn't give their attention otherwise. God is basically saying, decades into this discipline now, decades into having been conquered and taken captive, you're still the same. You haven't changed. But here's the twist. God says, neither have I. They haven't changed, but God hasn't changed either. He says, I'm still the same God, and that is why I am going to rescue you. The rest of chapter 48 plays this out. Look at verses 9 through 13, and I'll read this. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Listen to me, Jacob. Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid out the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Why hasn't God destroyed this rebellious, stubborn people? And they certainly haven't earned it. It's not for their sake that he hasn't completely obliterated them off the face of the earth. No, it's for God's own name's sake. We can't miss it in that passage. He says four, five times, it's for my sake, it's for my name's sake, it's for my glory's sake. I am doing this 
because of me and because of who I am as your God. I, as an unchanging God, am going to be consistent with myself. I am going to be faithful. I am trustworthy, and I am sovereign. And when you put those two things together, it means that I am still going to rescue you, even though you don't deserve it. He's the creator. He says, I'm the first and the last. He's the one who has existed from the beginning. And he's not about to give any finite nation or individual a reason to mock his name or take the credit that is due to him. And in verse 14, as he already did in the previous chapters, God refers to the coming of Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, as the Lord's chosen ally who will conquer Babylon. God's point is that he has already chosen, he's been working on this, he has chosen a particular person to be at a point in history to come and accomplish the rescue of his people. And his point is that Cyrus, who would become then known as the most powerful person on earth, Cyrus was just doing what God had already planned for him. Cyrus was doing the work of God. God is sovereign in rescuing his people. And then in verses 20 through 21, God proclaims deliverance from Babylon. He says, you're delivered. Go out from Babylon. Go back to your land. And then he uses language about providing water from the rock in verses 20 through 21 that shows how this rescue is just like what God had done before. God's saying, I'm still the same. I'm still the God who rescues you. Just like I brought you out of Egypt and provided water from the rock in the desert, I'm going to bring you out of Babylon. I'm going to bring you back to a place of peace and prosperity all over again because this is what I do. This is who your God is, Israel. Even though you haven't changed, I haven't changed either. I am still your trustworthy, sovereign ruler over everything. But verses 18 through 19, right near the end of this passage, shows us that there's a lament here. There's a downside here. And that is that the real problem hasn't been solved yet. Look at verse 18. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. God is lamenting that while, yes, he's going to rescue them from Babylon, their heart still hasn't changed. Things could have been so different, so peaceful, so prosperous. And there is this profound tension in chapter 48 between God's joyful proclamation of his deliverance of his people from Babylon right over against the real problem, his parental dismay at their continued stubborn rebellion. God is both overjoyed that he's going to rescue them and is still dismayed just like a parent that his child still isn't listening. His child's heart hasn't changed. And God ends the chapter in verse 22 saying there is no peace for the wicked. And he's not just talking about the Gentile captors of his people. He's talking about his own people. There's not going to be true peace for the wicked because their hearts are still wicked. So how is peace ever going to come to this wicked, rebellious people? Well, if you would ask the average captive Israelite in Babylon, when Isaiah wrote this, what's the problem that you're experiencing right now? Those captive Israelites would have said, yeah, the problem is that we're stuck here in Babylon. God made a bunch of promises to us about our own land, and we're stuck in Babylon. Babylon. 
And they were stuck in Babylon, and God says that he'll fix that. But the real root problem for Israel weren't that they were in Babylon. The real problem was that Babylon was in them. Babylon had infected their hearts, and in fact, their hearts were infected with deep sin and rebellion that was just as bad as the Babylonians long before they were ever in captivity. That's the real root problem. And God getting them out of Babylon and sticking them back in their land in Jerusalem and letting them rebuild walls and temples and all of that was never going to solve the root problem, and God knew that. And so for centuries and for millennia, and in fact before the beginning of time, he had another plan in place. Not just to rescue his people from this captivity, but to rescue them spiritually. And this is where we get to the transition from chapter 48 to 49. Up through 48, it's mostly been about God fulfilling his promises to rescue his people out of their captivity, to restore them to their land, and all of the ways that he was going to do that as a sovereign and trustworthy God. But he says, there's a bigger problem here. It's a deeper problem than you even realize, and I've been preparing a servant who's going to solve that problem, not just for you, but to the ends of the earth. And so we get to chapter 49 now. In chapter 49, the theme here, if the theme in 48 was that God was the trustworthy sovereign, the overarching theme of chapter 49 is that God's servant is the victorious Savior. God is a trustworthy sovereign, and his servant is a trustworthy and victorious Savior. Pretty much all scholars agree that the first section of chapter 49 is a song being sung by the servant by the Messiah, as we're going to see. Verses 1 through 6 are definitely a part of what the Messiah is actually speaking. Some people will take it all the way to verse 12, and I actually tend to agree with that. I think everything up through verses 1 through 12 is all talking about the Messiah and is really being spoken by him and about him. So look at the first two verses here. Verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In these first two verses, the servant introduces himself. And he asserts to the whole earth, not just Israel, and I think this is important to note, that he was always a part of God's plan. And that God gave him a prophetic voice and message. This servant is coming to speak God's message of deliverance and judgment. His mouth is like a sharp sword. His words are actually going to be like a weapon against God's enemies. They are also going to pierce the hearts of his people. There's language all throughout the rest of Scripture where it talks about God's word, and specifically the words of Jesus, like a sword, and him coming with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. This is what's being prophesied here. And then in verse 3, we have a statement that's very easy to miss, but it actually contains one of my favorite gospel truths in this entire passage. Look at verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Don't miss this. God chooses to deliberately identify the servant, one man, as representing all of his people Israel. God gives the servant the name Israel. Now, in the context here, that seems kind of strange. What has God been saying about Israel? You're rebellious, you're stubborn, you've got a neck of iron, you've got a forehead of bronze, your ears are stopped up, you won't listen to me. And God decides to call his servant by that name. Why would God do that? 
the name of the rebellious people is being transferred to the one who will represent them and ultimately rescue them to the glory of God. God is going to deal with his sinful people through one individual. He's not going to pull out all of his wrath and judgment on the people who deserve it. He's going to call his servant Israel, and he is going to display his splendor in saving all of Israel by pouring out his judgment and dealing with all of Israel through one representative, his servant. This is the very heart of the gospel, that we are represented by one who came to serve us so that we wouldn't have to take that punishment. We wouldn't have to take the judgment that God has declared against sin because he took it. This servant is none other than the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. This amazing transfer of identity is hinted at again in verse 8, if you look down a little further, where God says that he will make the servant himself a new covenant for the people. And again, down in verse 16, if you skip down further, where the servant says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's a clear picture, prophetically speaking, of the crucifixion of the Messiah who had nails driven through his hands. He said, The blood pouring from my hands, it has your name written all over it, Israel. I'm doing this for you. And he's taking on the very identity of his people in order to save them. In doing all of this, the servant clearly isn't just physically rescuing Israel. This has moved past the physical rescue from Babylon. He's bringing them back to their God. And this is what's mentioned in verse 5, if you go back. In verse 5, the servant says, He, that is God, formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. This isn't just going back to the geographical land of Jerusalem. This is the servant bringing people to God, back into relationship with their creator. But the servant isn't just going to bring salvation to national Israel. The story expands here. No, this servant is going to be victorious in bringing God's salvation to the world. Look at verse 6, where the servant is quoting God speaking to him. It gets a little confusing, but this is the servant listening to God the Father speaking to him. And the Father says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small. That's not significant enough. That's not going to bring me enough glory. I have a greater cosmic purpose, God is saying. And what is that cosmic purpose? I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is a mind-blowing truth for Isaiah to be proclaiming to the Israelites. Because remember where they were when he wrote this. They had just been conquered and made captive by who? The Gentiles. They hated the Babylonians. These people who were their captors were cruel. They were awful. And the people who had conquered the Babylonians really weren't much better. The Israelites had no respect for the Gentiles around them. And God is saying here, I'm not just going to rescue you. I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to bring you back to me. And by the way, I'm going to invite the Babylonians. I'm going to invite the Chaldeans. I'm going to invite the Egyptians. I'm going to invite everybody. I'm going to save people from all over the world. God says that he's sending a servant who will ultimately bring people from all nations to himself, bringing salvation to all these people, Israelites and Gentiles alike, who all have the same root problem. 
a heart that rebels against God, and God sending a servant who can solve that problem. In verse 7, we read that God is going to exalt this victorious servant Savior both in Israel and around the world. His glory is going to be known everywhere. Look at verse 7. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. I don't know where Aswan is. A lot of commentators will speculate that might have been China or India. Don't know. The point is, it's a faraway place that the Israelites weren't very familiar with. God says, I'm going to bring people from everywhere, and they're going to come and bow down. What's interesting is that this is saying they're going to bow down to the servant. Kings are going to bow to a servant. We can just gloss over it. We're used to hearing about Jesus as a servant. But the whole point here is that God is raising up one who would lead by serving, lead by selflessly pouring himself out with such victorious success that kings from all over the earth would come and bow down before him. Verse 22 and 23 carries the same message about the exaltation of this servant. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. The kings will be your foster fathers. Their queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick your dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. God's servant is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, and everyone is going to acknowledge this victorious Savior and even acknowledge and bow down to his people whom he has redeemed. This is the extent of the victory of this Savior. And that's the message of these two chapters. Verse four, chapter 48, God is a trustworthy sovereign. Chapter 49, his servant is a victorious Savior. Add it all together across these transitional chapters in the servant's song of Isaiah, and we see that for his own glory, the sovereign God will rescue his stubborn people and will bring salvation to the world through his servant. So what? Okay, so what does this mean for us? That's sort of like the exegetical meaning of these chapters. If you're just faithful in reading these chapters, that's the main, those are the big ideas that we're supposed to get out of this. But what does that mean for us? How does that bring hope? How does that bring comfort? I'm sure that, I hope that you have heard things that are comforting and encouraging or challenging to you through this. But I want to get very specific about two points of application here. As we dig a little bit further, specifically in chapter 49. I'm going to conclude by taking a closer look at two doubts or fears or questions that the people of God express in chapter 49, and we're going to see how they apply directly to us today. First, look at chapter 49, verse 14. A couple times in this chapter, God breaks from speaking through the servant or speaking his own words, and he gives voice to what he knows his people must be thinking as they hear this message. Verse 14 is one of those. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God anticipates and gives voice to this despairing cry from his people. Despite all of the blessings that he's foretelling for them, 
despite the fact that he is saying, you are a blessed people, they still can't believe it. Their hearts haven't changed yet. They're still saying, no, no, I, I think I'm forsaken. I think that God has not only forsaken me, he's forgotten me. Why would they say that? Well, for the last almost 70 years at this point, they've been in captivity. All of God's promises about them being a prosperous and fruitful nation, enjoying their own land, all of that had been down the drain for 70 years. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I don't think there are very many 70-year-olds here in our congregation today. I'm probably closer to that than most of you. Most of you, 70 years is like double or triple your age. 70 years is a long time. Imagine that for your whole lifetime and your parents' whole lifetime and most of your grandparents' lifetime, you had been praying for one thing, that God would hear you and deliver you and fulfill his promises to restore you, and God hadn't shown up. At least not the way that you thought that he should have. That's a really, really long time. That's why the people, despite God telling them what he was prophesying about the future blessings, they're saying, no, the Lord has forsaken me. God has just completely forgotten all about me. They were asking, in all this misery, has God forsaken me? Has he just forgotten about who I am and what's important and what's valuable to me? Can anyone here identify with that feeling? Do any of you ever wake up in the morning, or is it maybe just me? Wake up in the morning, or go to bed at night with that gnawing discouragement or anxiety of not really feeling like you've seen any evidence that God has heard you, or that God has answered your prayers, or that God has shown up for you the way that you think that he needs to? Maybe I'm just alone in that, but I don't think so. I think this has been going on for thousands of years with God's people, and I don't think we're alone in that. Maybe sometimes you wake up in the morning and you wonder, where's God? Where is God in the financial dumpster fire that I find myself in? Where is God in the physical suffering that I am experiencing and that I cannot get relief from? Where is God in the terminal diagnosis that my friend or loved one just received? Where is God in the dysfunctional relationship that I have with my roommate, my classmate, my spouse, my parent? Where is God in the abuse that I have suffered? Has God forsaken me? God, have you forgotten me? Does that resonate with anyone here? And if it does, know that you're not alone. I have absolutely felt those things. When my life seems to contradict what I believe about God, the Bible tells me over and over that God doesn't forsake us, and yet sometimes it feels like he has. Sometimes it feels like he has forgotten. And these people felt that way, and I guarantee there are people here this morning who feel that way. And what we want in those moments is not some intellectual proof of God's existence. That's not what they're asking for here when they say, God, have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? And that's not what we're asking for either. What we want in those moments is comfort. We want comfort. We want God to wrap his arms around us with tangible proof that he is here and that he knows what we're feeling and that he will help us. And that's exactly what God responds with. He doesn't scold us. He doesn't scold Israel for the question. He gently responds with his own question in verse 15. 
Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. God goes to the most caring, most comforting, most nurturing, most devoted relationship that we can possibly know about. And that is the care of a new mother for her infant. I've observed that five times with my kids. Five times I have come to the conclusion in each of those scenarios with Asher and Isaiah and Ada and Ezra and Jude that, wow, Lindsay really loves these kids. I'm pretty sure she likes them a whole lot more than she likes me. She could ignore me, but she is not going to ignore the cry of that baby. That is the way that God says he feels about us, but he puts a twist on it because we expect this to be a rhetorical question. Like, no, of course a mother can't forget about her baby. But we know that human nature is such, we are so broken that even a mother could forsake her baby. Even a mother could forget. It's possible. And God says, even when that happens, even at that extreme, I'm not going to forget you. I am better than any earthly mother with her infant. That is how much I care about you. That is how much I desire to comfort you. And he says that it's the servant, it's Jesus in this passage, who is actually the guarantee of the comfort that he will bring us when we feel like we have been forsaken and we have been forgotten. Look at the very next verse, verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is why you are not forgotten. This is how you know that you have not been forsaken, because I wrote your names on my hands when I died for you. Your names are engraved in my own flesh. How can I possibly forget you? How do we know God hasn't forsaken us? Because Jesus represented us. Jesus bore our sins that deserved God's judgment, and instead of eternally forsaking us, God forsook his son. There was someone who once asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was actually forsaken by God. It was reality, not just perception. But it was reality for him so that we'd never actually get forsaken. God was forsaken for us, God in the flesh, so that we never get forgotten, so that he never abandons us. Far from judgment and rejection, we actually receive comfort from God in the form of his own spirit, sent to us to be our comforter. And he is there speaking to us through his word, speaking to us through the common grace of being around other believers, speaking through the graces that we find through the church, speaking through the fellowship of his people. He has provided us so many ways to be comforted. And he asks us to recognize that comfort that we receive through Jesus, who has written his name on his hands, and to remember that he cannot possibly ever forsake us, even if it feels like he's sometimes taking too long to help or comfort us. He has not. He cannot. He will not ever forsake or forget his people, and that includes you. Now, the second question we find in verse 24. And I'd like to conclude with the final verses of chapter 49, where we find our second doubting question. Having heard all these incredible promises of restoration and glory, Israel asks what appears to be a really hopeless question in verse 24. Can plunder be taken from warriors? 
Can captives be rescued from the fierce? In other words, is rescue possible from my hopeless situation? Now, obviously, the immediate meaning of this for Israel was doubt that anyone could deliver them from the most powerful empire on earth. They were held captive, not by some lesser nation, but by the Babylonians. They they were being held captive by the greatest nation on earth at the time. But in the broader context of the spiritual deliverance that's being prophesied throughout this chapter about the Messiah, this question takes on meaning that extends to us too. You could rephrase this, can I be rescued from whatever is holding me spiritually captive? Not just physically captive, can I be rescued from whatever fierce thing is holding me down, is holding me back, is discouraging me, is crushing me? Can I be relieved from captivity? And so I'll ask you, do you ever feel yourself really feeling hopeless from escaping a sin or a habit or a weakness or an addiction that seems inescapable? Do you ever find that no matter how hard you try to escape or quit or get away from that one thing that plagues you, that you just keep going back? You just keep feeling like you're captive to it? Just as captive as the Israelites felt, hopeless that they would never get out of Babylon and get back to the place of blessing that God had promised to them? The question arises in us, can we be rescued from the fierce? Can plunder be taken from the one who has taken spoil, from warriors. And God's answer to this hopeless people is immediate, and it is definitive, and it is comforting. Not only can they be rescued, but God will rescue them, and God will fight for them. And that's encouraging. But then all of a sudden, God takes this really dark turn. All of a sudden, God goes really dark here. He does what another pastor called divine smack talk. And he goes from focusing on Israel to turn his attention towards his people's oppressors, to the one that he's going to rescue them from. And God says in verse 26, I'm going to make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They're going to be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Whoa. It's dark. It's gruesome. It's graphic. And that's because it's exactly what the enemies of a holy and righteous God deserve. But does it also sound maybe just a bit familiar? Eating flesh, drinking blood like wine? It sounds like the Lord's Supper. It sounds like communion. And this is not an interpretive hill that I'm going to die on here. And it's certainly possible that God is only describing the terrible judgment that's going to fall on the specific historical oppressors of his people. And that God is going to prove through this that he's going to be their rescuer. But... I cannot help but observe that in this same passage, with one of the clearest prophecies about the Messiah in all the Old Testament, in the same poem where the servant takes on the very identity of rebellious, sinful Israel and engraves their names on his hands, that the explicit judgment that's proclaimed on God's enemies against sin uses the same imagery that Jesus gave us to remember the judgment for sin that he suffered in our place. Sinful rebels against God deserve this gruesome punishment of broken bodies and shed blood. But instead of it falling on me, and instead of that falling on you, we learn in the New Testament 
that it falls on Jesus, that it was Jesus' flesh that was torn and broken, his blood that was poured out like wine. That imagery gets used in the Old Testament about God requiring blood for the remission of sins, about God declaring judgment of torn flesh and poured out blood on his enemies. And then in the New Testament, what happens to Jesus? Standing in the place of rebellious, sinful people like the Babylonians, like the Israelites, and like you and me, what happens? His flesh is torn. His blood is shed. And this is part of God's answer to his people feeling like they have no victory over what's holding them captive. It's that he's going to pour out judgment on all that holds us captive. And in our case, that judgment has already fallen. It has fallen on Jesus, and Jesus is our victorious Savior, and we have victory over sin and death and the grave and all that would hold us down because his blood was shed, because his flesh was broken. God invites us to remember that the punishment that Jesus took for us has earned us redemption and deliverance from all of our enemies. And our passage ends with this wonderful assurance in verse 26. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord and your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. How do we know that God is our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer? Because the servant... Jesus came as God's ordained servant. He took our flawed, broken identity on himself. He took all the punishment we deserved as God's enemies, and he rescued us from all corners of the earth for the sake of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful this morning that you didn't end your proclamation of deliverance for Israel with just a physical deliverance from Babylon. We thank you that you did do that, that you fulfilled your promises and you proved yourself to be a trustworthy, sovereign God. And that we can learn from that that you will also deliver us from all that physically binds us and torments us and the struggles that we face, that you are a God who can solve those problems. But thank you for the transition to chapter 49. Thank you for the servant who comes and solves the real problem that Israel and all of us struggle with. And that is that our hearts are rebellious and stubborn against you and that we need a savior. And so thank you for the servant. Thank you for Jesus who has engraved our name on his hands and who redeems us and brings us back to you. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.